Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me this week are my editor at Fintech Futures, Sharon Kimathy. Hey! And Sam O'Connor, CEO of Financial Companion App and Tax Tool for the Self-Employed, Coconut. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem at all. Uh, shops, restaurants and pubs may be opening up these days, but we're still recording the podcast episodes separately for now. Now, the topic this week and what we'll be talking with Sam about a little later is open banking and how that brand name, if you will, is faring adoption wise across the world. But as usual, we're going to pick up on some big news from the past week. Uh, Pythagoras famously said that numbers rule the universe. And so we've picked uh, some headline figures to go over. Uh, Sam, you're our guest. So why don't you let us know what big number has caught your eye recently? Yeah, so so the big number for me is the $825 million acquisition of Felicity uh, by MasterCard. Um, and it's really interesting on a, on a number of dimensions, not least because it signals to the market that actually open banking is a, a really big deal. And it follows the acquisition uh, of Plaid by Visa as well. Yeah, I think that's a really um, interesting point with the fact that this is a large deal um, and it's also by, you know, a giant payments um, credit card institution and also a data aggregator. We've seen that in the past as well. We've, we saw it with Playad as well. Um, and it's basically telling us that if these deals are approved by regulators, the largest card networks will end up owning two of the largest U.S. data aggregators which are companies that collect and feed bank customer data into fintech apps like Venmo and Betterment. Um, they've been powerful over the last couple of years. They're a central hub through which the lifeblood of fintech and open banking as well, which we'll be discussing in greater detail later on, is pumped out to all the applications that need it. Um, they're super central to fintechs at the moment, and it seems like a super hot um, area that's coming up. What do you think about it all, Sam? Yeah, I think it's it's really really exciting, and I think what's notable about this is the, you know, if you think about Visa and Mastercard, they're really like the backbone of payments and transactions, particularly when it comes to the consumer. And so the fact, or or they are the ultimate in kind of uh, platform play in payments. And so the fact that they've actually taken such um, big bets on open banking just shows actually how the value of data coming out of um, current accounts, credit cards, and things like that is um, is going to actually transform customer experiences for people. And I think what's interesting um, as well is that they're both US plays. And so in the US, it's slightly different to the UK and Europe, because in the UK and Europe, we've got the open banking ruling from the CMA, and then you've got PSD2 throughout Europe. So there's a level of standardization here that, um, you know, these companies can, can play off. And I know that MasterCard in particular are actually, you know, building some of the technology around PSD2 themselves for, for Europe. But these are definitely focused on the, on the US. And I think it's a, a definite response to the visa acquisition of Plaid. But all in all, I think this is going to produce some very exciting stuff for um, consumers and businesses around the world. 
Excellent. And uh, I think we'll be we'll be tapping on that a little bit later in the uh, the main segment of the pod. Uh, I, but I think uh, it's time to introduce uh, my number, which is uh, 120 million this week, which is the the number of customers uh, which WhatsApp has in Brazil, which is the same number of customers which were exposed to the platform's payment service, at least until last week, because the Central Bank of Brazil suspended it. And that was almost less than seven days after it had first launched in the country. And the regulator also called on Visa and MasterCard, who we've just mentioned, to cancel all payments going through the platform. Uh, according to Bloomberg, the central bank made its decision because it wanted to, uh, and I quote, preserve an adequate competitive environment. Um but according to the social media firm, WhatsApp Pay had been tested for a month with the central bank prior to going live, um, which is strange because the regulator itself says that it needs more time to determine whether WhatsApp Pay fully meets its rules. Um, an insider told Bloomberg that the decision has, uh, I'm sure, surprised WhatsApp, um, which again says it's been in regular contact with the, the regulator since it came out. Now, Facebook has sort of been struggling to get WhatsApp pay, WhatsApp pay off the ground, um, which is surprising when you think about the large user base it has, especially in places like India. Uh, not too long ago, the National Payments Corporation of India gave Facebook permission to roll out WhatsApp pay, but only to an initial 10 million users, which obviously in a market like India is relatively tiny. So this news uh, isn't great for WhatsApp or indeed for Facebook at a time when uh, the WhatsApp parent company is facing its own uh, troubling issues. But um, Sharon, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this story? Yeah, I think it's another setback for Facebook once again um, with its ambitions to enter into the payment space because Libra also drew regulatory pushback earlier this year um, with concerns that it could hurt the monetary sovereignty of major world economies. Um, it seems like big techs, though, your Facebook's uh, Google, Amazon, and Apple keep trying to push into the financial industry. Um, and the progress is quite slow, to be honest, probably slower than they would like. Uh, but they are looking at peripheral offerings. So much like this payments as well, instead of going with a full stack of just being a regulated, a regulated bank with a license. Um, so it's a bit odd that they would like to feel, look and smell like a bank and offer these services that are similar to a bank but they do not want to go the whole hog. So I probably would side with the Central Bank of Brazil in this case, in that they do need to ensure that they meet with regulatory requirements. What do you think, Sam? I think it's, I think it's fascinating because actually what we're seeing is a, a kind of disintermediation of the, uh, the institutions, the banking institutions that have just been there for uh, years and years and a, a kind of trusted but also a little bit tired right and so you know much like libra much like open banking as well uh, it feels like there's some forces at play that are trying to prevent um the banks losing control of that customer experience uh, and ultimately the revenue potentially um but i i also think that as you say, um, it's important to maintain a good regulatory environment. And, you know, a case in point with Plaid um, having the lawsuit brought against them in the US, which I, I found out about today, um, because actually uh, the claim is that they've just been claiming, uh, they've been aggregating and accumulating data totally unnecessarily. Uh, and that in itself kind of undermines trust in what's going on. And 
I don't think that you would see that in the UK and Europe because of the uh, the regulatory infrastructure around open banking. So, yep, it's important to get the regulations um, right. It's important to get people, all, all kind of players um, on board. But also, we do need to push for innovation and, and challenge to the hegemony of the big banks. Yeah, and I think there is a... Um... There's there's sort of a, an extra caveat to this story, which is very much a you know leave it to your own thoughts. But um, the the Brazil has its own uh, instant payment system called PIX, which it launched, which it launched earlier this year, which the central bank said would prom- would eliminate delays between transactions and aim to complete payments within ten seconds. Um, so it's a instant payment system operated and managed by the central bank with multiple participants. And um, WhatsApp says that it supports the central bank's pro- PIX project on many digital payments uh, and is committed to working alongside the central bank to integrate uh, with the new payments rail. But that's a, a separate side of things and can show the, uh, uh, the, the ways that regulators and fintechs can think differently. Um, but speaking of regulators, uh, I'm sure Sharon's been waiting to talk about this all week, basically. Uh, but how could you how could you not ignore what's going on at Wirecard? And I'll, I'll hand over to her now to, to give us the gist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought that SoftBank would be a hilarious story and maybe amount to something huge. But Wirecard, my, my, my. I mean, where do we start? They're probably about four different sections to unpack. The background, uh, the CEO... Um, its impact on fintechs and crypto, uh, speculation as to its shares. But I will try and, and unravel it. So my number is 1.9 billion euros, which is quite large for me because I've usually been keeping to, to my low numbers. I had like 100 uh, the last podcast. So yeah, Wirecard, which is a German-based pay tech that processes electronic and cashless payments to cash registers and on the internet, filed for insolvency on the 25th of June owing creditors almost $4 after disclosing a gaping hole in its books in Germany's worst accounting scandal. So the firm disclosed a $1.9 hole in its accounts a couple of weeks ago, and that revelation came after a tumultuous period for Wirecard. Um, It commissioned a special audit by KPMG in an effort to allay concerns over its accounting last year, um, where staff appear to have conspired to fraudulently inflate sales and profits at Wirecard subsidiaries in Dubai and Dublin, um, misleading EY, the group's auditors, for a decade. Now, the news of the filing caused its shares to dive almost 80% on the 25th of June, so they lost about 98% uh, since the auditor EY questions its accounts. Um, and then the insolvency filing as well is probably one of the, the first in the German DAX index since like 32 years ago. Uh, so they said that its survival was a going concern and was not assured. And it cited its 1.3 billion euros of loans due at the end of the month. So this implosion all came after EY refused to sign off the 2019 accounts. And then that forced the CEO, Marcus Braun, uh, to be arrested on suspicion of false accounting and market manipulation on the 23rd of June. Uh, But then he was given bail as well, uh, 5 million bail. So he's now out just, you know, living his life. Um, And then Wirecard as well in the UK got done by the Financial Conduct Authority. So they had to put their accounting on on hold whilst the FCA investigates. This recently only got... um, ensure that it was fine today, but 
the FCS still supervising it. So even though you can still make your transactions flow through, they're still keeping an eye on it. And there's loads of customers who have been um, affected by this. Revolut, Orange, Curve, all of them. Um, quite a few of them have already threatened to terminate their business with Wirecard um, and a lot of other payment operators are now coming up to say, hey, guys, you can now use us. We even have OpenPaid who have been um, jumping on that bandwagon and we had them on last podcast too. So that's going to be interesting to see how they benefit from this. And there's also, you know, involvement with crypto because um, Wirecard card solutions supports a number of crypto cards um, by 10x and crypto.com. But at the same time, it looks like everything might just be fine. I mean, even though we're having a go at the regulator in Germany and also here for, you know, what, what they were doing and having this pretty much just go right under their nose, it seems like they might be fine as uh, speculators are driving up Wirecard's share price almost three times because inve investors are speculating on a rescue. Um, so there is a sale happening in its US subsidiary. Um, so they're hoping that that might help things out and, and make it slightly better. But I would just like to take this moment to commend the work of the investigative journalists at the Financial Times and also Manager Magazine based in Munich, because they were following the scandal from about 2016 onwards, and they were really pushing with a bunch of legal cases thrown at them. Um, but yeah, I know that there's so much to unpack there, guys. Honestly, there is way too much. It's like pretty much an, an episode of successional scandal. But what do you guys think? Uh, what are your thoughts, Sam? You know, this is an incredible turn of events and, and actually something that's quite close to home on a couple of dimensions for me. So I actually used to be an auditor myself at PwC and the process through which an auditor uh, requests information from third parties like banks to verify cash balances was actually uh, the the basis for my previous fintech business that we sold in 2014. And so on one level, I'm just looking at EY and the fact that they missed that there was a, a hole in the balance sheet of uh, 1.9 billion, which equates to a quarter of um, the net assets. And I just can't actually believe that that's happened because it's such a, um, a, a standard audit process to go through. And actually, you know, my previous company was called uh, ProConfirm and we were acquired by Confirmation, which was definitely the global leader in this. And they've recently been acquired by Thomson Reuters. And it costs $99 to send one of these requests. And the fact that it wasn't done um, is completely negligent in, in my view. But then on the other hand as well, um, I think that the fact that that's happened and the repercussions for that, both for UK and global fintech, are are really profound. And, you know, I did have a lot of faith that the regulator um, or the regulatory environment that we have is there to protect customers, protect customer funds. And there was this freeze, as you've said, of Wirecard's processing in the UK, which meant that there was a lockup of customer funds sitting in those accounts. But I do believe the regulator did it for the right reasons to make sure that they've uh, sealed off those segregated funds, which are are there and, and should be there under the e-money rules, and that there's no slippage of those between uh, the UK entity and the German entity. And that's 
happened. It's happened relatively quickly. It caused a huge amount of pain over the weekend for um, those Anna customers and Pocket customers who had their their money locked up. Um, but now uh, the um, restrictions have been lifted, and so people can go about uh, their businesses as usual, which I'm very relieved about, and also glad to see that the e-money regulations and those segregated funds uh, rules have. Uh, protected consumers. Now we enter part two of the podcast, where we open up the discussion on a specific industry topic. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're talking about the continuing impact of open banking around the world. Though everyone and their dog uses apps of all kinds these days, does it matter that many people haven't heard of an API? Uh, Sharon will be asking her regularly insightful questions in a moment. Uh, but first things first, I want to give Sam a chance to talk about Coconut, introduce himself and the firm, and give us an overview of how things have been for them in 2020. So Sam, take it away. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, so I'm Sam. I'm the CEO of Coconut. Coconut is uh, a is the ultimate accounting and tax tool for self-employed people. Uh, so you can connect up any of twenty uh, UK-based current accounts um, from uh, through open banking, or you can open a Coconut current account, and then you can get cracking running your self-employed business with invoicing tools, expense tools, uh, tax reports, and all of that kind of stuff. So we take the pain out of running your business. And we just passed 27,000 customer signups. And 2020 has been quite an incredible year, as it has been for everyone. But we got off to a really flying start with the launch of our open banking features in January. And then we were due to launch our crowdfund on the 23rd of March, but that was the first day of lockdown. And so we had to really uh, put that on hold and and start to focus on our community and supporting um, self-employed people through the beginning of lockdown when there was so much uncertainty. And we did that with a a campaign called the Campaign for Self-Employed Income Support, um, which was really successful. But uh, actually, things have started to ease up for self-employed people, small businesses, and we launched our, our crowdfund uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, we've already smashed our target by uh, 225%. So things are really shaping up for the rest of the year, and uh, I'm excited to see that. Well, congrats on smashing the target. Um, fingers crossed you'll get exactly what, what it is you guys want. Um, and speaking of acquisitions and money and all that stuff, what does the Plaid and Finicity acquisition mean for the future of open banking? Is it safely on the map now? Yeah, I think there's the the way that I think about open banking is really um, in it's really split for me. I think that in Europe, the regulatory ecosystem is a lot more evolved. And so you've got PSC2 driving it all. The UK is actually a really interesting uh, case study when it comes to open banking, because we've we've actually moved slightly ahead of Europe because we had the CMA ruling around open banking. And so we launched uh, the aggregation APIs and the payment initiation APIs a little bit early. 
But there's another interesting facet about the, the UK market that makes it very exciting in terms of a good test bed for open banking. And that is that 80 to 90% of all current accounts are with uh, four or five big banks. Um, and so that means that actually you can deliver a huge amount of value to customers by developing a, an open banking app in, in, in the UK and then use that experience to push out into other, um, other countries. Now, in Europe, you've got the PSD2 uh, regulations, which means you've got the payment initiation and the aggregation throughout Europe. Um, and so there are platforms now, um, such as the MasterCard platform, um, that, that are uh, in development and going to connect people to thousands of banks throughout Europe. And then you've got these really interesting acquisitions in the US um, of uh, Finistia and, and Plaid. And there's slightly different challenges over in the US. For, for one, there's probably uh, many thousand banks. Uh, and so the work involved is connecting with all of those. And, you know, you've seen the, the launch of the, the new Plaid kind of bank API solution to help banks with their APIs. And so uh, I think that the, the Visa and, and MasterCard acquisitions just show that this is going to be big. Um, it's a really important systemic uh, transformation for banking. And that means that there's going to be a huge amount of value driven to customers of people building these apps on, on top of that. Yeah, I mean, Finicity has been at the forefront of creating the Financial Data Exchange, which represents banks, fintechs and financial services enterprises that support a single data sharing standard. Now, do you think this acquisition will pave the way for a more standards based approach to open banking and APIs? I think that that's important. Um, I think that the the standardization of uh, this transmission of data, the authorization of the customer around it is really important to make sure that it's efficient to use. And so as an example of like uh, efficiency in the UK, the um, by you know by standardizing the way that the banks are implementing the APIs and the data sets that are being provided means that actually it's easier for those intermediary companies to to pull out those data points and put them into one uh, API for any provider that actually uses those services but i think perhaps more importantly and it's quite relevant today because of this um this court case in the US uh, that's been brought um against plaid and that is that the, the, this individual feels like Plaid have been on this monumental data gathering exercise uh, without necessarily informing customers um, properly about how they're going to use the data and why. And so claiming that it's potentially unnecessary for them to do that. And so I think part of the standardization that needs to happen is, as is done in the UK, there's a lot of care taken to make sure that as customers authorize the release of that information, they know exactly why they're doing it and what it means for them. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I probably will try and dive into that um, court case too, and we might report on it as well. But aside from um, Plaid and Finisti and all that, uh, Splendid Unlimited, a design and development agency, revealed that while 9% of adults in the UK have used an app or service that uses APIs, just 22% have heard 
of open banking as a concept. Is it important for people to know what this is? If so, what measures do you think should be in place for people to understand it better? I don't, I don't think that it's important for, for people to understand necessarily um, the mechanics of it or know what an API is even. And, you know, people use APIs all the time. So the most common uh, examples of it are, are logging into new uh, websites and, and apps using your Google login or or Facebook login, um, and you know there were those early examples of it where suddenly, you know, suddenly your your Spotify playlist would be all over your Facebook feed and everyone would know that you listened to Celine Dion on repeat, uh, and those have all been and then everyone got freaked out by that and that got shut down and so you know the the API ecosystem is developing all the time and and people don't necessarily need to know what that means. And I think the same thing about open banking. The actual mechanics of open banking and how it works don't need to be revealed to customers. But what does need to be revealed is what clearly they're authorizing and, and what the value of that is for them. And so I think that actually that's when it gets really exciting for consumers when they realize that actually Using open banking, I can do my tax return in a matter of like, you know, 5% of the time that it took me last year. Or using open banking, I can suddenly see in real time how much tax I'm going to owe at the end of the year. So I can put that aside. And those outcomes as a result of open banking are way more important for people to understand. So actually, I think if companies like us, if the banks and if the regulators are doing their job properly, the, the level of awareness of open banking should probably um, either stay the same or go down. Yeah, and speaking of the level of awareness, um, the UK's open banking implementation entity, the OBIE, has definitely been on a mission to try and make it more mainstream, especially for consumers in the UK. Um, it opened an app store in order to help consumers and businesses access more suitable financial products. Um, the aim to do this was especially during this lockdown they wanted people to be able to access it online and not have to go to your branch in order to hear about this. Um, so the App Store currently has 68 apps listed. And do you think this will change the perception of what these apps actually do? And I also noticed Coconut was not on the list. So will you guys also plan on getting on the list? Yeah, I think the... the so the way that people discover the services that they need are generally not through uh, app stores like that, right? I think that um, the point at which you are told, you you should use coconut, right? Is generally when you'll be talking to somebody about a problem that you face. Um, and actually, we've been really lucky because we've got, uh, as I mentioned, uh, over 27,000 all-time signups now. And, you know, at the moment, about 85% of those come to us through through word of mouth. And it's because we make a point of doing things that ultimately solve a big problem for an individual and are shareable. And I think these app stores might present themselves well as like a, a kind of a way of increasing trust if someone were to search 
on there for approval of something that they were going to use. But generally speaking, I don't think that they would be a very good discovery mechanism for new products and services. Um, and that, it goes back to my previous point, that actually, if you're doing something that's really acutely valuable for an individual, they'll go and share it with their friends, particularly if there's a trigger around doing that. So uh, people complaining about how much work they have to do around accounting and tax is a, is a really good trigger for that. You know, in the instance of Revolut, it was always, oh, I'm going on holiday. And obviously people would say, oh, great. Well, I know a really cool thing that you can take on holiday. It's going to save you money. And, um, and so, you know, actually going to the open banking implementation entities app store is probably not where people will discover stuff. That's, that's not to say that it's not a good thing um, to, you know, increase trust in, in those services. And, and I think, you know, another example of this is, is the making tax digital APIs um, uh, and the, the proof software providers for that on the HMRC website. Um, and it just means that if someone's looking at you as an option, they can go to there and say, okay, it's trusted because it's on, um, it's on an official uh, list. So we've reached the last segment of the show and regular listeners will know what that means. It's time for the fintech jail. This is where our guest submits a term, a trend, a technology or something else in the industry which gets on their nerves and tells us why it should be locked away for good. Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail with every other buzzword that has been locked away. So Sam, what term do you think or trend do you think needs sending downtown? Yeah, I, I, I think that cash should be locked up in, in the jail. Uh, and I know that that presents some challenges, um, particularly for people who don't necessarily have access to electronic payments. So I'll acknowledge that. But I feel like, you know, particularly with the COVID situation and also uh, an issue that's close to me, which is cash is difficult to account for and difficult to automate your bookkeeping around. And so for me, just having these kind of physical notes lying around just attract uh, viruses, bacteria, but also make the work involved around managing your money much more difficult. Oh, that's a big one. Oh, this is a, this is the funny thing is I, one of my favorite things to do is to speak to anyone who's in the, the, any industry involving cash, like in working with ATM hardware software and just asking them if cash is dead and watching their response. Uh, <laughs> nice so pastime. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you gotta, you gotta find the fun where you can. Um, oh, cash, big one. I, oh, I, I don't know. I'm actually going to pass this to Sharon quickly while I ever think. Ah, oh, hot potato. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I caught the hot potato. Um, I'm going to say um, I wouldn't want it in there purely because there's lots of elderly people and also vulnerable people who still rely on ATMs and, and using cash. Maybe if there was more of an initiative, I would say from the government side in order to help these people sort of move into to digital. So I don't know, there was this guy once who advocated for um, everyone having broadband and everyone called him crazy, even though that would have been really good news for people going digital. I don't know, but yeah. So 
I would say until there's a way for everyone to get access to the internet and be involved in the digital space, then you still really, really need cash. Okay, I'm passing the hot potato to you now. Whoop. <laughs> uh, wow, okay. Yeah, I, I think I kind of agree on that one. I mean, it's like one of those things where uh, I'm not going to pretend that I came up with the idea, but people have occasionally spoken about the idea that there needs to be a uh, a challenger bank or a neo bank for the older people in society, and I agree completely with that. And I think, yeah, until we have that infrastructure in place, uh, I mean, it, I, I have a hard time getting my mum to work the internet, let, let alone my grandparents. Um, so <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I I think it's it's sort of it's a it's a, it'd be a nice it's a weird thing to think about it'd be a nice to have cash in jail and everything be nice and smooth i mean uh it was sweden that tried being cashless for a while and then ended up having to bring it back didn't they uh so for me maybe not i don't think so i mean sam do you want to do you want to give us another give us another plea maybe yeah and i think that's bang on you know it's got to be part of an initiative to bring people who aren't necessarily in the digital payments ecosystem um and and give them the support they need to do that. But I would probably counter what, what you've both drawn on in terms of actually uh, the requirement to be using the internet to use a, a card. Um, and so I think those two things are, are quite distinct. Um, but I do think that the, the government could do more to actually, uh, you know, get people who are using cash into the digital payments ecosystem and receive some of the benefits that that, uh, that actually involves in terms of, you know, not having lots of change around, actually having a bit more um, control over what's spent, um, maybe even saving on a bit of the logistics around having to go and pick up cash or, um, or, or the risks involved in actually carrying large amounts of cash as well. But I take your points. So uh, it sounds like it could be a, a case adjourned sort of situation. <laughs> yes, <And> case dismissed. <laughs> so I have to wait and see if we can have someone else to, to to plea this one as well before we make a final decision. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Uh, but thanks very much to Sharon. Thank you for having me, as always. And thanks very much to Sam from Coconut. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. Excellent. Great to have you on. Um, before we sign off, though, uh, we're actually going to give both a chance to plug some socials. Uh, so, Sam, have you got anything you'd like to, to plug? Well, come and visit at getcoconut.com. And if you're involved in crowdfunding at all come to crowdcube.com slash coconut uh for the next 11 days or whenever this is um goes live and uh see what we're doing over there excellent sharon uh what about you where can we find you online you can find me at fintech kits that's just the way you normally spell fintech and then k-i-t-s um, yeah, so you can follow me for all the latest stuff to, to do with Banking Technology Magazine and also the Black Lives Matter movement because it is still a movement. Okay, it's not a moment. It's a movement. And there are plenty of petitions as well that I'm retweeting so people can sign up. Excellent. Uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at ADHamilton91. 
uh, or on LinkedIn just by uh, searching my name. Uh, and as for fintech futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at, at @fintechfutures, or on LinkedIn just by searching fin- fintech futures, excuse me, and looking for our gorgeous logo. Uh, if you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. Uh, we'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to your best friends in fintech. Thanks very much for your support. Uh, we'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.